Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Jesus Christ lived the best life that could be lived. And since he lived the best life that could be lived, then it is logical that you and I can look at his life as it is described in the Gospels and draw from his life some things that we can apply to our lives to make our lives the best life that we possibly can live. And that's what this series called The Best Life, looking at Jesus, the life of Jesus through the lens of Luke, is all about. I want you to turn with me to a very familiar passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 4. We'll read the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 4. The title of this message is Funny Where the Spirit Will Lead. Funny Where the Spirit Will Lead. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have just read your word. Your word is powerful. It reaches deep into the deepest parts of our souls, our minds, our hearts, our beings. And it exposes us for who we are. But Lord, your word also fills the void that is in all of us with uh, words of truth that lead us to a relationship with you. Lord, these words about your temptation or words that are so jam-packed with so much we could not begin to unravel and unpack all of the goods, all the truths, all the, the wonder that's in this passage if we did a, a year-long series just on this passage alone. But God, I pray that you would help us to see from this passage some things that are very pertinent to our lives. Lord, as we pray, we come to you and ask you to be with people we care about. 
We pray, Lord, for the family of Jack Bentley, who died Friday. Lord, we pray for Merrill Jenkins. We pray for uh, Mr. Clyde Taylor and for his daughter, who is at the point of death in a hospital in North Carolina. Father, we pray for Charlie Pace and Mr. Ed Johnson. We pray for the family of Lena Smith and Randy Hembry. We pray, Lord, for Vicki Blunt and James Harper and uh, Miss Jane Smith and Miss Sarah Peake, for Sue Ellen Kearns. Lord, we ask you to uh, be with Tom Roper, and we ask you to be with Stanton Johnston and Johnny Bearden and Mike Laster. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with those in our congregation who have concerns that nobody else knows about. Father, we pray for Gary Wright and Jerry Watson as they get ready for upcoming surgery. And we pray, Lord, that all of these, in all of these cases, these people will recover and gain their uh, strength. Lord, we pray for Eddie Miller, and we ask you, Lord, to uh, help him to overcome this infection that he has had. Lord, we pray for forgiveness of our own shortcomings, which are too many to mention in a single prayer, for we'd be here at long length. We pray, Lord, for our church. Help us, Lord, as we move forward in this new year. May this year be the best year in the history of Palmetto Baptist Church. To your glory and to your honor and for your witness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke is big on the Holy Spirit. If you study the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which are the two books that Luke, the physician and part-time colleague of the Apostle Paul wrote, you'll find that Luke is obsessed with the Holy Spirit. Every time you turn around, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Holy Spirit uh, in the uh, uh, situation of the birth of John the Baptizer as early as Luke chapter 1. And throughout the 24 chapters of Luke, he mentions the Holy Spirit by name, 18 times in 24 chapters. When Luke wrote the book of Acts, which he wrote as a sequel to the gospel of Luke, it seems that the more he wrote, the more he became interested and intrigued by the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, which has 28 chapters, there are 55 times that Luke mentions the Holy Spirit. Now what that means is that when you combine Luke and Acts... Part one and part two of Luke's uh, uh, partnership of narratives, what you find is that in 52 combined chapters, there are 73 times that he mentions the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Holy Spirit at the birth of John the baptizer. He mentions the Holy Spirit uh, having involvement in the birth of Jesus. He mentions the Holy Spirit uh, in Jerusalem when Jesus is eight days old and he's being... Uh, dedicated to the Lord by Mary and Joseph and a man named Simeon and later a woman named Anna, both of whom are filled with the Spirit. John the Baptist says that he baptized with water, but when Jesus comes along, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
Jesus here in chapter 4 is filled with the Holy Spirit when he comes out of his period of time being baptized. And then he moves to the wilderness. And the Bible says here in Luke that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. When he comes out of that, and we'll deal with this tonight, the Bible says that he was, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And you can go on and on at all the times when Jesus, Luke says, is either anointed by or filled by or led by the Holy Spirit. You go into the book of Acts, and chapter 2 in the book of Acts, the Bible says the apostles, after the uh, crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, they're in an upper room trying to figure out where to go from here. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit descended upon them like tongues of fire, and they stood up anointed and filled by the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in a way that people of other languages, different from the apostles, were able to understand what they were saying. Luke is big on the Holy Spirit. Now, I know you know that the Holy Spirit, according to Christian doctrine and according to biblical doctrine, is also God, not a separate God. We believe in this crazy, incomprehensible thing called the Trinity, which means we believe in one God who reveals himself to us in three different persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in such a way that while they are three distinct persons, when we are looking at or reading about or thinking about either one of those three persons, we're looking at fully God. So when we read about Jesus, we're reading about God in his fullness. When we read about God the Father, we're reading about the fullness of God. When we read about the Holy Spirit, we're reading about the fullness of God. So when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit fills somebody, what that basically means is that the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, fills us. When you were saved, if you're a Christian, at that very moment, the Holy Spirit of God came into your life. His presence, the presence of God, the presence of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, filled you. And if you're a Christian, God, through His Spirit, lives within you. The Holy Spirit is God. And so where the Spirit leads, God is leading. Now, when you think about that, and you think about it hard, it may come to some of us as a surprise that all three Gospels that describe the temptation of Jesus, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John doesn't deal with it, all three of those tell us that when Jesus went to the desert, the wilderness, to be tempted, it was the Holy Spirit who led him there. In fact, Mark is adamant. In Mark chapter 1, verses, uh, the two verses that he deals with the temptation, he says that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the desert. Now, Matthew and Luke, they try to soften that just a little bit and say that Jesus was led of the Holy Spirit, but Mark he says he was, that the Holy Spirit drove him. In fact, in the original manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark, Mark only uses present tense verbs, even to describe a past tense, tense action. And he does that 
to show even more activeness on the part of Jesus and on the part of what was happening revolving Jesus' life. And so in the original manuscripts of the, or the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Mark, Mark says the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. It has the, the uh, idea of being forced by the Holy Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness to be tempted by Jesus. Would the Holy Spirit lead you to be tempted? Would the Holy Spirit lead you into a desert place in your life where the Holy Spirit knew that temptation would occur? Now, if we didn't read the scriptures, we might, we might some of us, be tempted to say or inclined to say, Oh, no, no, he wouldn't do that. But the fact of the matter is, according to this passage of Scripture, and according to Matthew's version, and also Mark's small version of the temptation, yes, the Holy Spirit will do that. This is all the more surprising when, or interesting when we remember that in Jesus' model prayer, which in Luke's gospel is later in... Uh, in this gospel, on after chapter 11, the Bible says that Jesus asked God to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. Later on, he even prays that the disciples watch so that they will not fall into temptation. That was his, his instruction to them right before he went into Gethsemane to pray that prayer in which he sweated Great drops of sweat as if those drops of sweat were drops of blood. The Holy Spirit will lead you into some unusual places. So be careful about putting God or the Holy Spirit in a box that says God will do this and he won't do that because God may surprise you concerning where he will lead you. Now, God will always go with you, but where he leads you may be thin ice. Where he leads you may be dark alleys. Where he leads you may be dangerous situations. And that was certainly the case here in the temptation with Jesus. All three synoptic gospels, that's what we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say that the Holy Spirit led or drove Jesus into the desert where he was tempted. The Bible says he was tempted for 40 days without eating. And then at the end of that 40 days, Luke says he was hungry. And then Satan came out with three more temptations. The implication that Luke gives that is quite different from Matthew and Mark is that Jesus was tempted by Satan throughout those 40 days. But, they did, but at the end of the 40 days, Satan gets really intense with his temptation. He just didn't want to let up. Mark's version of the temptation, as I mentioned, is very brief. It only comes in two verses. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And in Mark, the Holy Spirit forcefully drives Jesus into the wilderness, where for 40 days he's tested by Satan, and he is accompanied by wild animals out in the field. Matthew and Luke don't mention anything about the wild animals, only Mark. Matthew and Luke's version of the temptation is much longer, much more elaborate by comparison. And Matthew and Luke are very much alike in the temptation. In both of them, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness 
where he was tempted. In both of them, there are three specifically mentioned temptations. And so they, Matthew and Luke, are very much alike in how they describe the temptation of Jesus. And yet, they differ remarkably in the sequence of the temptations. A lot of people have have uh, written books on the fact that in the temptation stories of Matthew versus Luke, the sequence of temptations is different. In Matthew, Jesus is first tempted to turn stones into bread. That is also the case in Luke's first temptation description. But then Matthew says the second temptation was one where Jesus was taken to the pinnacle of the temple and Satan said, throw yourself down And see what God will do if you are the Son of God. Then he says, the third temptation, this is Matthew, was that that Satan took him on the top of a mountain and enabled him to view all the great kingdoms of the world and said, I will give you these if you fall down and worship me. So you had the stones into bread, temptation one. The pinnacle of the temple, temptation two. And then the offer of the kingdoms of the world, temptation three. Luke says the stones made to bread, and then he puts the temple last and the kingdoms of the world second. So they swap the sequence of the second and third temptations. Now, they didn't tell us that they were going to promise us, and they don't promise us that they're writing in any kind of chronological order. So it's not that there's necessarily anything wrong with what they did. Uh, I I just want to stop here for a moment and and make this point. The Bible tells us that, that the scriptures were written by men of God as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Peter says as the Holy Spirit moved them along to write. And so, uh, We're talking about, in part, that the Holy Spirit may lead us into unusual places. The Holy Spirit may lead you in a place of temptation and darkness. The Holy Spirit led Matthew and Luke to record the sequences differently. Isn't that strange? They don't give us any reason for it. They just do it. There are a lot of things that God does without giving us any clear reason for having done them. In both Matthew and Luke, the word that is translated uh, temptation or tempt can mean to test or it can mean to tempt. Clearly, this is a case where as part of Jesus' preparation, in addition to his baptism, he was being tested by Satan. He was being tempted by Satan. If you uh, have read the Old Testament or are familiar with it at all, I know that you remember that when the Israelites came out of Egyptian slavery in the book of Exodus... They spent 40 years in the wilderness. And during that 40 years in the wilderness, they were tempted over and over again. What was the first thing they were tempted with? They were hungry and they were tempted to go back to Egypt because they were hungry. It is no coincidence that the first temptation that Jesus spent in 40 days as opposed to 40 years in the nation of Israel, 40 days in the wilderness was a temptation about his hunger that struck him at the point of his hunger. What I'm trying to say here is this 40-day experience of Jesus in the wilderness has an Old Testament counterpart, which is the 40 years of temptation in the wilderness of the, of the nation of Israel. The big problem here is that when the nation of Israel was tempted in the wilderness, they failed miserably and repeatedly. By contrast, Jesus 
when he spends his 40 days in the wilderness, he is tempted, the writer of Hebrews says, every bit as much as you and I are tempted from time to time, and yet he came through it and out of it without having sinned. The Holy Spirit will lead us into some funny places, or not so funny. Well, I want to go on to address some things in this passage of Scripture that I think are important. Since the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, knowing that he was going to be tempted, he comes into the wilderness, and the Bible says here that he was tempted by Satan. And there are some things that Satan did here with Jesus that he also does on a daily basis with you and me. I want to point these out to you. First of all, I want you to note that Satan will strike at your weakest point. He knows your weakest point. Now, there's an interesting thing here about uh, Satan knowing your weakest point. You see, Somehow, on the back burner of our minds, we have concluded that Satan is all-knowing. And that, therefore, he knows everything about us. The fact of the matter is, Satan has never been, is not, and never will be all-knowing. Now, he's very wise and clever, and he knows a lot, but he is not all-knowing. And I'm convinced that he does not know your weakness unless you and I tell him. And guess what? You and I will tell him. We don't mean to. It's not that we want to air our dirty linens in public, and we certainly don't want to air our dirty linens and our weaknesses in the, in the uh, earshot of Satan, but we invariably will let Satan know what our weaknesses are. And he knows them. And since he does know them, because we've told them to him, he will strike us at our weakest point. Luke says that Jesus had been in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he had not eaten anything. That's part of where we get lent from. The 40 days before Passover uh, correspond to the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness where he fasted and he prayed and he wrestled with temptation. And the Bible says that Satan came along at the end of that 40 days, and then he tempted Jesus even more. Makes you wonder how many total days he was there. Because at the end of the 40 days, without him eating, Satan comes, and does he tempt him with the pinnacle of the temple first? No. Does he tempt him by offering all the kingdoms of the world? No. He tempts him at his greatest point of weakness at that moment, and that greatest point of weakness was he was 40 days without food. The man was hungry. Satan is aware of your weakness And when he tempts you, not if, but when, he will tempt you and me at our greatest point of weakness. Jesus responds to him in each of these cases with the word of God. And he doesn't open up his Bible to do it, although there would be nothing wrong with that. He does it by memorization. Now you say, well, of course, he's God. He, he, knew, he wrote it. He knew it all. He, he didn't have to memorize it. Remember that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And also remember that Luke says at this point, Jesus was still growing in knowledge and in wisdom. And so we don't know to what extent he knew everything. My guess is that through all of his experience being raised in 
uh, what we'd call church, synagogue and the temple and so forth. He memorized scripture. One of the greatest things that you and I can do, which by the way, Satan will convince us or try to convince us that it's absolutely useless. One of the greatest things we can do is to memorize scripture. So that there will be times when the Holy Spirit, because we've memorized God's word, will bring these verses and these passages to our minds at the very moment where Satan attacks us at our point of weakness. And so Jesus, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. He says, he says, human beings, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan will strike you at your weakest point. Number two. Satan will promise you what he cannot, and even if he could, he would not deliver. The second temptation, according to Luke, is a temptation of power. He takes him to a high mountain and lets him view all of the great kingdoms of the world. And Satan says some things that are not true. He says, you see all these kingdoms? He says, they've been given to me, and I can give them to whomever I choose. That wasn't true. Now, he could influence them, but he had no control over them. God had control over what he could do and not do. The scriptures are clear about that. But he says, they've been given to me. I can give them to whomever I want, and I will give them to you if you fall down and worship me. Two things are very important here. Number one, he did not control them, and therefore he could not give them to Jesus. But even if he did have control of them, and even if he could have given them to Jesus, here's the kicker, he would not have. Even if Jesus had bowed down and worshipped him in hopes of getting all those kingdoms, he would have bowed down and worshipped Satan, and then Satan says, Ah, I'm just kidding about that, but thank you for bowing down and worshipping me. Because you see, you say, well, how do you know that? The scripture's not clear on that because Jesus didn't fall prey to it. How do I know that? Because that's the way he works in my life, and that's the way he's worked in your life. He promises us good things that he cannot deliver, and even if he could deliver them, he would not deliver them. Well, how does Jesus respond to that? Once again, he goes back into Deuteronomy, and he quotes back for Satan the word of God. You see, memorizing God's word is a key way to combat Satan. Number three, Satan will then twist scripture to turn your heart away from God. The scripture is a, it's a messy thing. The Bible is a messy thing. Don't think for a minute that it's just squeaky clean, crystal clear, black and white, because it's not. There is some black and white in it, but there are some gray areas in it, and they're gray enough that Satan can take them Twist them and throw them at you because, you see, he knows the scriptures better than you and I do. And he can throw those scriptures at you and me in such a way that we can almost believe him. The Bible says in this third temptation that he quotes from Psalm 91, which says that, uh, and it's speaking of the king of Israel, but uh, Satan is using it to apply to Jesus. He says, he says I'm going to take you up here to the pinnacle of the temple, throw yourself down. If you're the son of God, because God has promised that he would send his angels to pick you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. That'd be the equivalent of uh, somebody throwing Jesus off the top of this water tower. The pinnacle of the temple overlooked 
the Kidron River Valley, which went down to a dry river valley, a wadi, and then back up. And to fall off or be thrown off the top of that temple would be sure death. Jesus' half-brother James, who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem in the middle of the book of Acts, was killed in this way. Historians tell us that they took him up to the top of the temple and they flung him off of it. One writer said it'd be the equivalent of being thrown off of a high building like the Peachtree Plaza Center in Atlanta or the Empire State Building in New York. Satan will twist scripture in order to turn your heart away from God. And Jesus said, instead of believing Satan's interpretation of Psalm 91, he said, it is also said that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then fourth and finally, Satan never gives up, but patiently waits until the right time to attack you. The last verse, verse 13, says that when he was through with all of this tempting, Satan left him, and then there's a key phrase right there, until an opportune time. We don't see Satan again dealing with Jesus until we see him at the cross. And all that revolves around the cross. You see, Satan is in no hurry. You and I are in a big hurry. Satan is in no hurry. If it takes him 40 years to reduce you to nothing, that's fine with him. He's a patient. Patient. Next to God, he may be the most patient person in existence. And he will wait as long as it takes to ruin your life. The Bible says that Jesus came out of that temptation energized. How in the world could that be? Forty plus days not eating, constant temptation by Satan, intense temptation where Satan throws everything in his playbook at Jesus, and yet Jesus comes out of that temptation energized, full of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, this may be the reason why the Holy Spirit sometimes will lead you and me into places we wouldn't think that God would dare lead us. Because if we rely on Him and trust Him and allow His Word to flow through us, we can come out of even the darkest periods of our lives energized. So really, we have a choice, don't we? We can either be like Jesus, succeeding in the face of temptation by relying on the Holy Spirit and coming out energized, or we can be like the children of Israel who succumbed to temptation to the extent that over 99.9% of the folks who came out of Egypt never saw the promised land. They died before they ever got there because they yielded to the temptation of Satan. In your wilderness, when you are tempted, which way will you go? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we know we will face temptation. We know, Lord, that there will be times when darkness overwhelms us and troubles almost overtake us. You may lead us in those places. We don't quite understand all of that, but Lord, we know that you are with us in those places. Your Spirit guides us, leads us, fills us, reminds us of your word we've memorized in those places. And if we are faithful, you will see to it that we come out of those dark times energized. But it's all up to us. Because you're going to do your part, we have to be open to you. And I pray, Lord, that in this invitation, people in this building will make the visible commitment to rely on you. Lord, also there may be people here who need to be saved. They need to receive you as Savior. And we ask you to help them to come. Lord, there are people who need to join the church. Maybe need to be baptized. Maybe they have some prayer concern that they need to bring to the altar. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be free to come. Lord, there may be people who need to take out one of those response cards and on the back of it, check it off. I want to receive Christ or I want to be baptized or I want to join the church or I've got something I need to pray for. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to write that stuff down and give it to me, Lord, as they leave. God, may this be a time when somebody's life is changed and they come away from this day energized. In Jesus' name, amen.